0: Well, it's at this point in our service that we want to come to God's Word, and so I encourage you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, this is where we've arrived as we've been moving through the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at the first 19 verses this morning of Daniel chapter 9. Last month I was reading online, as I usually do, and came across an article on a website that I frequent by a pastor named Stephen Um, entitled, A Week in One Life. And the article was meant to show how one pastor organizes his time in in terms of sermon preparation. And it was interesting to see some of the things that he did. Uh, But what struck me the most were two little statements that came at the end of his week during his final preparation. They were given almost as offhanded comments. They were not even elaborated on. But they stuck with me and actually caused me to forget pretty much everything else he said in this article about sermon preparation. At the very end he said that on Saturday nights after dinner with his family he would go away to the study and pray for three hours over his sermon manuscript and the preaching of it the next day. Then he would arise at 6 o'clock in the morning and spend the next three hours in prayer again for the people and for the sermon that was about to be preached. Six hours between Saturday night and Sunday morning, laboring in prayer over his preaching of God's Word. As I read that article, those words seemingly jumped off the page and smacked me in the face. I was completely unprepared to read about that amount of time being spent in prayer for a sermon, and yet in reading that, I was convicted again about the importance of prayer and my own failure to have that kind of prayer life. But that can change. I was encouraged that the Christian life is never meant to be static. Just because you find yourself where you're at uh, with whatever measure of godliness has been granted to you as you pursue God by faith, it doesn't mean that you're meant to stay there. But in fact, progression in the Christian life is what God desires for us, and that is also true when it comes to our prayer life. Just because you pray the way you pray now doesn't mean that can't change, that it cannot grow, that it cannot be more than it is. As Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, there are few things that are nearly as important as our time with God in prayer. He says there is an evangelical dictum, stretching back to at least John Owen, the great 17th century Puritan writer, that says this, What an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. This is true because prayer is an expression of what we know of God and of ourselves. We might be able to fake out people. We might be able to fudge the reality of who we think God is or who we understand ourselves to be in relationship to God when we're in public. But in private, on our knees before God, there's no faking anyone out. The reality is, Of our lives and our beliefs before him is laid bare in our prayers or perhaps even by our lack of prayer. Believing that to be true then, the spiritual vitality and evident godliness that we have seen over the last eight chapters in Daniel's life becomes all the more clear to us because he was supremely a man of prayer. Again and again we see not just a man who prays, but a man of prayer. He responds to any crisis in life with prayer, and that response flows from the steady, disciplined, regular life of prayer from which no crisis could ever deter him. It is an example that we should consider because he is a man just like us, and yet he is someone that we can learn from. So this morning we want to again see Daniel as the man of prayer. We want to consider how he prays, what he prays for, and the very spirit of prayer that existed in his life. Because here we find an example for how we today should pray for the church and for ourselves. So I would encourage you to follow along as we read chapter 9. As, as I read chapter 9, and uh, as we seek to unpack this prayer and see the example that it is for us today. Here's what Daniel says beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuerus, a descendant by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, According to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, Because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers. Because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws. Which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. Refusing to obey your voice. And the curse... An oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and getting insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for Yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city Jerusalem, Your holy hill, because... For our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning. From Daniel's example in prayer, we find at least five ways that we should imitate him if we are to have a godly life of true prayer. Five directions that emerge from this passage that have followed will not only help us in our life of prayer, but will also help us in our relationship with God, the one to whom we pray. So here we go. Five directions. The first direction is this we should begin with the Bible. We should begin with the Bible. (coughs) The chapter opens by telling us in the first year of Darius, Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. First of all, notice the date. Daniel offers this prayer to God during or right before the first year of King Darius. That means it's taking place sometime after chapter 5 and before chapter 6, as we previously saw. Why is that important for us to know? It's important because of what happens in chapter 5. What happens in chapter 5? Babylon falls. And Daniel knew that it was his God's doing. But more than that, he knew that the judgment of Babylon also signaled something for his own people, the people of Israel. He knew this from the prophetic word of Jeremiah. In chapter 5 of that book, God tells Israel he will send them into exile using the kingdom of Babylon. He says, this whole land of Israel shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord. He says, I'm going to use the Babylonians as an instrument to discipline you, Israel, but then I'm going to discipline Babylon itself for all their sins God then says after that 70 years of exile Babylonians will fall their kingdom will go away and Daniel has just seen that remember Belshazzar is partying and God puts the handwriting on the wall that says your end is imminent and it happens that very night he is killed and the empire falls and this man Darius becomes the ruler over the land now Daniel's not just read Jeremiah chapter 25, he's also read Jeremiah chapter 29. And here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So what is God saying? God is saying when the 70 years are up, When I've brought down Babylon, I will visit my people again. I haven't forgotten them because I've committed myself to them. I have plans that go beyond just their immediate sin, but plans for future and a hope that will ultimately come in their Messiah, my son Jesus Christ. I will show mercy on them. Therefore, when the time is complete and you seek my face in prayer, you will find me. You will find me and I will bring you out of Babylon and restore you to be my people. Daniel reads this. He meditates on it. He perceives the truth of it. And what does it lead him to do? It leads him to pray. Verse 3, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Notice Daniel doesn't say, well, God's going to do this. I'm going to pack my bags and I'm going to wait for it to happen. It's not what he does. Daniel sees the plan of God from Scripture and he understands the close of the exile is about to take place. So it energizes him to pray for the fulfillment of God's promises. God has sovereignly decreed years before, this is what I'm going to do. Daniel sees that and he prays, God, do what you said you're going to do. Therefore, God's sovereignty over everything... Everything is never meant to diminish our responsibility in life or deaden our zeal for prayer and action. God's sovereignty in the Bible is never meant to lead us to fatalism, to just sit back, put our feet up, and do nothing. Just the opposite. It is because God is sovereign and He has made promises then we have assurances and hope, and therefore we act and we serve and we pray. Why? Because God uses means to accomplish his sovereign purposes. For example, the preaching of the gospel is the means by which God keeps his promise to save his people. Therefore, we preach the gospel. If we didn't preach, no one would be saved. But God has said, preach and I will save. So we preach, and he saves. Likewise, in Jeremiah, we see that the prayers of the people of Israel will be the means by which God restores them from exile though he's already sovereignly declared he's going to do it, he also says he will do it in response to the prayers of his people. That is the means by which God's face will turn again with mercy to Israel and bring them back. Therefore, Daniel prayed. You know, my kids will say to me, week after week, remember what you promised, Daddy. Remember you said you were going to do this. Remember you said you were going to give us this. And I have to admit, for a couple of years, I found that incredibly annoying. Don't tell me what I said. I remember what I said. Just, just go on and play and leave me alone. But then, you know, to be honest, as I, as I began thinking years ago about prayer and about how the saints in the Bible prayed, this was one of the prayers that came up. And suddenly I realized my kids tell, reminding me of what I promise is not inherently a bad thing. The reason why it was frustrating to me, the reason why it was bothersome and irksome was because not my kids, but me. I had failed often to keep my promises. Sometimes I just forgot. Sometimes, though, it was not in my power to keep my promises, and sometimes I just decided I didn't want to keep them. My annoyance was really a mask for my guilt and my inability to keep promises that I had made. But for God, that's never a problem. It is never a problem because he never forgets, he never fails, he always keeps his promises and he delights when we remember them and turn them into prayer. This is why the Puritans used to speak of prayer as pleading the promises. They would look to the Bible, they would see what God had promised in the Bible, then they would go back to God in prayer and say, Lord, do what you promised. This is what Daniel did. How much better could our prayer lives be if we allowed it to be driven by the Word of God? Rather than pray for simply what we think is best, we could let God tell us what is best to pray for. Rather than wonder, is this God's will, we could actually pray for the things that he tells us is his will. His kingdom would become our priority. His will would become our desire. His eternal perspective on life and on what is good and right would elevate our praying simply above what we can see. Daniel's life and prayers were driven by the word of, word of God. How much more should ours Be driven by the word of God. That's the first thing. Begin with the Bible. But then secondly, we see from Daniel that we should remember God's character. We should remember God's character. Notice how Daniel begins his actual prayer. He says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. (coughs) Pardon me. What does he do? He starts with God's character. He is launched into prayer by the reality of who God is. And what does Daniel say about who God is? He says he is the covenant Lord of Israel. He is Yahweh, the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people, those who love him and keep his commandments. God is not far off but near to his people. He has entered into relationship with him in fulfillment of his promises to Father Abraham. And he has been faithful in that relationship. Though, as we will see shortly, the people grew slack in their love and commitment towards God. He never grew slack in his love and his commitment towards his people. He was always faithful. Therefore, he is great and awesome. He is mighty and glorious and deserving of reverent fear and worship. That is the God to whom Daniel prays. Furthermore, Daniel just doesn't begin by invoking the character of God. He's actually sustained in prayer by who God is as well. Throughout this prayer of confession for the sins of Israel, he is contrasting the people with God himself, with the character of Israel, with the character of God. So in verse 7, Daniel says, Righteousness belongs to the Lord. In verse 9, he possesses mercy and forgiveness towards those who rebel against him. In verse 14, God is the one who is righteous in all that he does. Then in verse 16, he is the God who is angered and wrathful at sin, while also being righteous in all his acts of judgment. Again and again throughout the prayer, Daniel keeps coming back to who God is. Why is that so important? It's important because who you understand God to be will affect how you pray to him. How you understand the character of God will affect the content and character of your prayers. So for example, if the God you pray to is never angry at sin and always loves everyone equally and unconditionally, your prayer life is going to be pretty thin. You won't confess sin. You'll likely ask for a lot of things that you may or may not need. And when you don't get what you ask for, you're going to be frustrated, confused, and not want to pray anymore. Why? Because you have an aberrant view of who God is. On the other hand, if the God you pray to is good and holy and just and powerful, but he would never stoop to interfere with the will of man and just kind of lets things go as they will, then your prayers would be long on praise but hesitant in requests. After all, so many of the things you want to pray for would only be fulfilled if God steps in directly and affects the thinking, the desires, and the wills of individual people, perhaps whole nations. Therefore, God won't act. And therefore, your prayers will simply be along the lines of kind of nudging and and noodling and maneuvering people. You can never pray, God, save them. You can only pray, God, woo them to yourself. Give them a little bit of wisdom. Help them move them along. Because the God that you pray to is an aberrant view of God. The calling for us is to know who God truly is by letting Him tell us who He is. Not to pick our favorite verses or our own conceptions of who God is, but to go to the totality of the book and to behold the glory of God in His fullness so that our prayers to Him will be appropriate. Don't pray to a God who is made in your own image. Pray to the God that we see in this passage, the God who is the covenant Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments the god who is righteous in all his acts though stands against sin and anger displaying his holy wrath is also a god who is merciful and loving and grants forgiveness and life to sinners and displays his glory supremely in the face of his son jesus christ if we are praying to that god then it will not be long before we begin to call out to him in repentance and confession of our sins And that brings us to the third direction we want to see this morning, and that is this, be honest about sin. Be honest about sin. In the context of the book of Daniel, this isn't just a a normal everyday prayer that he would have prayed. This is a prayer of confession and repentance accompanied with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, deep signs of mourning and contrition. Furthermore, it doesn't take long for Daniel to get right to the point. He says to the covenant Lord of Israel, though you are righteous, verse 5, we have sinned. And done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. That's the heart of this prayer in chapter 9. So what can we learn from it? Well, based on how Daniel prays, we should better be able to see how to confess and repent of our own sins. Notice first, the language is plural. Why is that important? Well, remember, Daniel was a teenager when the exile happened. Maybe even as young as 14. And he doesn't just say, our father sinned and left us in this place. It's the leader's fault. The priests of the kings didn't do what they were supposed to do, and now we're stuck here. They sinned, oh God. No, what does he say? He says, we have sinned. We have sinned. You know, the former prime minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, once said the responsibility of the Second World War was Hitler's alone. And that was accompanied by a great amount of applause. And often that's who we are and and how we live, isn't it? As long as it's somebody else's fault, we're cheering and we're applauding and we're saying amen. But when it's our fault... We don't like it so much. The same is often true in the church. The problem with church and with culture, they say, is atheism and its growing rise in the secular culture. It's politics. It's declining morals. It's always something other than us that we point to as the problem. But Daniel here sees himself as part of the covenant people of God. He recognizes that sin isn't just something outside of himself. Sin exists in his own heart as well. It's important to see this because as D.A. Carson says, it is doubtful that we can ever fruitfully pray for our church and our culture without first confessing our own sin. The problem isn't just out there. The problem is me. In England one time, there was an editorial that said, uh, what is the greatest problem in all of England and in the world? Well, why are things so bad? And one uh, devout Catholic, G.K. Chesterton, wrote in and said, the problem, dear sir, is me. Affectionately yours, Chesterton. He understood the problem is never just out there. It always starts in here as well. Daniel confessed the sin of Israel as well as his own. But what was the sin of Israel? But what was the sin that he was confessing? What was the sin that brought them into exile? Well, there were many. But Daniel boils them all down to one common thing. That is this. They have disobeyed the word of God. Throughout the prayer, he says, we have turned aside from your commandments and rules, verse 5. We have not listened to your prophets, verse 6. We have not obeyed your voice, verse 10. We have not walked in your laws given to the prophets, verse 10. We have transgressed your law, verse 11. We have not gained insight by your truth, nor sought your favor, verse 13. When you look at Israel's history, there are plenty of specific and obvious sins, idol worship, injustice against the poor, the murder of prophets, sexual immorality, and on and on and on. But Daniel says all of that amounts to one thing. We did not listen to and obey the Word of God. And frankly, that's always the heart of the issue for our sin. God has spoken, and we ignore Him. Therefore it should come to no surprise that in both the Old and the New Testaments we find the way to grow in godliness, the way to walk with God is always by listening, believing, and obeying His Word. So Psalm 1 can say, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. And when Jesus prayed for the church in John 17, He said, Sanctify them, make them holy in the truth. Your Word is truth, O God. When we fail to do that, then we must confess it as Daniel shows us. It is sin to disobey the word of God. And what's important that we understand here is that we're honest about our sin. We understand it for what it truly is. In his prayer, Daniel says, Disobedience, the world is sinful, wicked, it's rebellion, it's shameful, it's treacherous. It's worthy of all the calamity that God brought upon Israel in the exile. In other words, it's not small potatoes. It's not, well, I goofed, I made a mistake. Daniel says, no, it's terrible. It's horrible. It's an affront to God. In fact, he says, specifically for Israel, the sin was unthinkable. Verse 14, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that, is brought up, that he has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works and all that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, that have made a name for yourself, at this day we have sinned and done wickedly. Daniel says, it is unconceivable that we would sin in this way. God came in in power and in mercy and He revealed Himself in Egypt. He triumphed over every false god and over Pharaoh himself and He brought us out safely. He made us His people. He established a covenant with us. He tells us, though though you were small and weak and frail, you were orphan on the side of the road, I picked you up and I loved you, I cleaned you up and I made you my son. And yet we ignore Him. We walk away from Him. We act as if He's done nothing for us. Daniel says it is inconceivable that we would sin in that way. And so it is with all sin. With all sin, it is unthinkable that the God who created us, who has given us life and breath and established the number of our days, who has allowed us to exist in this, the greatest country in the world, with all of its blessing despite all of its problems, and that we would try to make God in our own image and walk away from the one true God. Sin is a terrible thing, and biblical confession should reveal that. One pastor says this, There is a difference between feeling miserable because our sin has made our life miserable and feeling broken because our sin has offended the holiness of God and brought reproach on His name. Daniel's confession, biblical confession of sin, is God-centered. The issue is not admitting that we have made our life miserable. The issue is admitting there is something much worse than our misery. Namely, the offended holiness and glory of God. That's the reality of sin. And that is when we confess it, what being honest about it is. It's not just, well, I goofed. It's not just, you know, I I put myself in a bad corner. It is, I have offended the sovereign God who created me. And who has every right to do with me as he wishes. I have not loved him and I have not worshipped him, though he deserves it all. When we see that, we must go to God and confess it. But how shall the sin be dealt with? God shows in the life of Israel that our sin is serious and must be dealt with. He sent them into exile. Chastised them and punished them. What about us? When we confess our sin, we also must fourthly ask for mercy. Fourth, we must ask for mercy. Daniel has come face to face with the sins of his people, and this is what he knows they need. They need mercy from God. At the very beginning, he says, verse 3, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. In this regard, Daniel displays a spirit that was probably contrary to the rest of his people. Think about what life has been like now. 70 years has gone by, decades has passed since the people came into Israel. If Daniel was 14, he's 84 now. Most of his contemporaries are long dead, buried in this foreign land. Their sons and daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, they've all grown up in the exile knowing this is normal life. This is the way it's always been. This will likely be the way it always will be. Some have even prospered during that time. And all of that has likely left them with the idea that the the exile is unfortunate. We've made the best with what we've been given. Daniel doesn't think that at all. Daniel still looks around at 84 and he says, The situation in which we live. Understand, he's got it pretty good. I mean, he's like top man in the kingdom, second only to the king. I mean, he has no need for want of anything. And yet he still looks around and he says, this is a desolation on God's people. This is judgment. What has happened to us is terrible because we are cut off from the pattern of life that we were meant to have. Life in a land promised by God, surrounded by his glory and a temple that we might know him and express our love for him. And we cannot do any of that now. Daniel, therefore, sees the evidence of God's curse all around him as he continues to live in this foreign land. He saw the eyes of God and he knew his people were still in desperate need. And they can't ask for justice. If he asks for justice, they get wiped out. For the most part, you should never pray, God, I want justice, especially for yourself. Because God's justice demands our sin be punished. And because God is infinitely glorious and beautiful and holy, the corresponding judgment must also be infinitely just and appropriate. That means we deserve eternal hell. Therefore, like Daniel, like Daniel, we call on and we say, we need God's mercy. Because we have sinned, and the sin is so heinous. We are honest with the reality of it. We call out, and the only thing we have is to say, God, be merciful to us sinners. Verse 18, Daniel says, Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. In the coming of Christ, God has displayed the supreme display of mercy. In fact, when you read the totality of the Bible, you see God could only show mercy to Israel because of the coming ministry of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. For as Jesus offered his life upon the cross, the justice of God was satisfied. His righteous wrath against sin was pulled out and absorbed by His own Son on the cross, so that those who turn to Him in faith and say, God, I, I, want, I believe He is the Messiah, He is the Savior, therefore count His sacrifice for me, count His righteous life for me, then we are able to appeal and seek God's mercy. And God has said, come and I will give mercy because of what my Son has done. He has earned a righteousness that you need to be with me. He has satisfied my wrath against your sin and your life which you deserve. Therefore, look to Him. Trust in Him and not yourselves. And I will give you mercy. I will wipe the slate clean. I will forgive your sins. I will do more than that. I will bring you into my family. I will set my name upon you and make you my child forever. Therefore, today as we see the reality of our sin and we... No, we need mercy. We allow the reality of the gospel to drive us to God in prayer. And when we do that, we find that our motivation, above all things, should be to seek the glory of God. This is the last direction that we see from our text, that we should seek God's glory. Why is Daniel praying? Why is he seeking God's mercy? Why is he confessing sin and seeking the end of the exile for his people? Think about that he's 84 If I was 84 in exile my first thought would be I just want to go home right And we might think that's what daniel's motivated by i've done this long enough We've been here the 70 years god. Let's get this over with and i'm ready to go home, but daniel's better than that Because daniel knows that life is more than just about him it's more than just about his comforts. It's more than just about his desires. It's more than just about him. Namely, it's about God and his glory. And therefore he prays that way. Verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention act Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What is he doing? He's saying, God, your reputation is on the line. Your glory is either going to be besmirched among the peoples of the world or it's going to be lifted up and exalted. Already because of your people's sin, we are a desolate people and our our name is a byword among the nations. People laugh and make jokes about Israel over their wine and cheese at night. Oh, God, that reflects on you. Don't let that happen, God. Show mercy to your people that we might be restored from our desolation and you might be glorified, you might be made much of. That stands in contrast to so much of our prayer today, which is self-centered. It is self-centered. Even when we think we're praying for God's will, there's so often a slant that says, Oh God, may your will be done and may your will be easy for me and my family. May it mean long life and health and wealth, and a life free of pain and fear. May your will, may that be your will, O God. Isn't that how we pray? Daniel shows us a different way, though, doesn't he? Daniel is more concerned that God be glorified than he has his every whim satisfied. That his fears are assuaged. And this is the true nature of prayer. It always seeks God's glory. And here we have a problem because sin so often clouds our minds. And we fail to understand that the reality is, insofar as we seek God's glory, we will receive the most good. We somehow believe if we pray for God's glory, then my life is going to be terrible. And that's not actually what the Bible says. Daniel's spiritual vision was both stronger and clearer than that. He could see the supremacy of the glory of God and that devotion to God's glory was the only way for him to know real joy in his life. For God in his infinite glory, in the totality of his three persons and all of his attributes, he has devoted himself to the salvation of his people. He has devoted himself to making a people for himself, saving them from their sins, and bringing them into fellowship with him. Therefore, to seek the glory of God and the the producing of his salvation is to seek our joy. Daniel knew that, and so should we. Daniel's ultimate motive for prayer was the glory of God because it was his great motive for living. Daniel saw clearly the need of his people. He saw that they were desolate. He saw the need of mercy. His praying was clearly people-oriented, but it was God-centered. The bottom line of his heart cry, verse 19, Save your people, O Lord, for your own sake. When that phrase, when that understanding has migrated from our lips to our heart, and we really believe that and feel that, then we will be mastered by the true motivation for prayer. Daniel describes the church, I would describe the church rather, in much the same way that Daniel describes Israel in this text. He says that Israel is desolate and a byword among the nations. And I have to say, as I look around this country and the cultural landscape, the church has become the same thing. We have become a shadow of our formal selves, and we are a laughingstock stock among all the secular institutions in this world, from politics to education, we have become a desolate church. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we just going to try harder? Are we just going to have cooler music, dress in fancier clothes? Are we going to grow beards? Whatever it is we think we're going to do that's going to cause us to connect to the culture, I guarantee you it's going to be wrong. Because what the culture does not need is for us to connect to them. What the culture needs is for us to shine brightly with the glory of the risen Christ. Because when they see Him in us, then we will be connected to the culture. Because what they will see is their greatest need being fulfilled among us. Therefore, as we think about the church today, as we think about praying for us today, that we might be all That God wants us to be. That we might be desolate no more. We begin with prayer. We allow the character of God to shape our praying. And we get on our knees and on our faces and we confess our sin and cry out for God's mercy. Not even so that we will have a bigger church and we will have a bigger budget. But that God's name might no longer be a byword among the nations. That His glory might be seen and savored. By all the nations. Father, that is our desire this morning. To be a praying people. That our prayer might be a true expression of what we know of you and of ourselves. And God, what we know of you and of ourselves might be true. Father, help us to ask the hard questions. What is our prayer life really like? Why do we pray? What do we pray for? How often do we come before your throne? Father, I pray this morning that Daniel would be an example to us, even as he points us forward to your son, Jesus Christ, the supreme man of prayer. God, help us not to simply pray out of duty, but God, may we pray because our hearts long to be with you and to know you and to have every spiritual need that exists satisfied by you. Father, you have told us that you are a righteous father who longs to give good gifts to his children. And yet so very often when we, we, we don't even ask, and therefore you do not give. Sometimes when we ask, we ask with wrong motives, and therefore you do not give. Oh God, help us to confess and seek your mercy, and help us come to you truly, seeking you and your glory that your people might no longer be desolate among the nations. That the name of Christ might be magnified as a banner over all peoples, that they might know the joy of your salvation. God, we pray these things in his name.